It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, are too many young people going to university? In May 1997, the newly elected Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Tony Blair, stood on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street and laid out a key pledge to the country. Labour government, a world-class education system in which education is not the privilege of the few, but the right of the many in our country. Blair, like many leaders in the Western world, was the product of an elite university. And he was a progressive who believed that for too long, Britain's universities had been the preserve of the privileged. So he set a target that half of young people should get a degree. He wasn't alone in thinking like this. The view that a thriving economy and less inequality would flow from producing more graduates became the orthodoxy across large swathes of the world's prosperous countries. His symbolic target was achieved 20 years later, but with it came a student debt burden, allegations of grade inflation, and now accusations that traditional academia is lost in navel-gazing culture wars detached from the society around it. So, is university or a college degree still worth it? Someone who thinks the system needs a shake-up on both sides of the Atlantic is my guest, Ewan Blair. He's the founder and chief executive of Multiverse, a tech startup which matches school leavers with apprenticeships at leading companies, including Google and the luxury fashion retailer, Ukes net porte He's also the son of that pledge-making Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and he's building a business by ignoring his father's education policy. Ewan Blair, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, thanks for having me on. Great to, great to be with you. You set up Multiverse in 2016. Five years later, it's worth an estimated £639 million. That's about $875 million-ish. You've smashed the funding record for UK-based edtech startups. You've quadrupled in size. You're well on your way to becoming a so-called unicorn. Are you surprised yourself at how quickly this has happened? Look, we're backed by some of the world's best VCs. Index, Lightspeed, General Catalyst, Bond Capital, D1. These are people who've backed a range of the world's most successful companies, but actually haven't traditionally backed companies like ours that are social mission-led, in education, and helping provide access to high-quality employment opportunities for a really diverse group of people. So it's incredibly exciting what it means about the way that the world has moved forward over the last few years in terms of how we approach education more broadly. Because we're building an outstanding alternative to university and to corporate training. And particularly when we talk about that outstanding alternative to university piece, the idea is basically, what would you build if university didn't exist as this kind of gatekeeper for careers? 
that was fair, was accessible, was free to the individual, and was focused on applied learning. There are a number of problems with this current one-size-fits-all university model. And, you know, as an example, in the UK, only 4% of those claiming free school meals make it to a Russell Group University. Big corporates and the best jobs have traditionally gone to Russell Group University graduates. That's meant they do not represent society at all. And that is becoming an increasing focus and increasing challenge that big companies are keen to address. In the US, your family income is a greater determinant of your career earnings than your GPA, even at an Ivy League institution. So for a long time, it was believed that university or college would help level the playing field. The more people went, it's not worked out that way. And the other problem is every company is undergoing huge amounts of digital transformation. They are all changing. That's been accelerated by the pandemic and they cannot get the skills they need by relying on academic-only qualifications or universities and colleges to somehow make up that shortfall. So we've honed in on professional apprenticeships as a mechanism by which we can combine work and education. We can provide free access to the best jobs for people where they don't have to accumulate debt. And we're training them in high-skill, high-impact areas in the workplace, supported by one-on-one coaching in a community. And this also is intended to apply to the US. You've opened an office in New York. Why would you push into America? That's often been difficult. I say this possibly because I struggled with it as someone who was a public policy editor and trying to unite the kinds of way you think about education systems in Britain and sometimes the rest of Europe and the US, which in many ways is a different culture around education, has different challenges. It seems like, yeah, it's a pretty brave choice. It is, of course, different. There are actually some similarities. Like the UK, it is very much a tech and professional services geared economy rather than a manufacturing one. And look, on the strategic side, obviously the US is a huge market. We've raised all of our investment rounds from US investors. Many of our biggest customers are either US headquartered or have significant presences in America, but also The issues that we're tackling, diversity and digital transformation, are much more acutely felt in America. I mean, racial equity at the moment is being talked about by every CEO as something that has to be addressed. And there is a a burning platform now in America for people to go and tackle these issues by better representing America through their workforces. And apprenticeships can play such a key role in addressing that. There's also the fact that it has the most expensive college system in the world. There is a huge issue around student debt. And actually, 75% of the population go to college, but often not incredibly high quality or reputable institutions. And many of them end up working in minimum wage jobs. I mentioned at the top of the show for listeners who might vaguely think the name is is familiar, but not who you are, that your father is Tony Blair, who was Britain's Labour Prime Minister from 1997 to 2007. Education, one of his top priorities when he was in government, indeed when he was campaigning, which I'm old enough to have uh, written about, he called for that symbolic target of 50% of young people in higher education. That number actually was met in the UK. It was part of an overall sense, really, that the more people who went into higher education, the better. It sounds like, in a way, your business and your early success is built on doing the opposite of what your father recommended as policy. <laughs> Look, we, we discuss it, by the way, and he's hugely supportive of the work we're doing. And it makes sense because it's actually always been about the result, not the input, which is how it should be. You, you referenced it there, but the idea was the more people that went to university, the more people would access opportunity 
um, and the more we'd improve social mobility, it hasn't worked out that way. And, and the stats are pretty revealing in that regard. So do you say to him, look, you were mistaken? It was a thing to try and address the problem and it didn't work. And we're approaching it in a very different way. And also, look, I'm, I'm not in government. I'm not a policymaker. We're doing it in a practical way that is rooted in what businesses need and what we think will benefit society. This idea that it didn't work, I suppose another view of that may be that it, it may not work, but it's still pretty popular. We've seen record numbers of 18-year-olds apply to university in the UK, the status of a college education Warts and all, and all the problems that you raise about the kind of value proposition of some degrees, a large number of degrees in the US, it's still very popular. What do you put that down to? It is, though, enrolments are falling, and we've seen that through the pandemic, and that is only picking up speed. And I think the perception is shifting quite quickly. In the UK, 57% of parents think apprenticeships offer a better chance of getting a good job than university. There was recently a survey that said in America, parents value a Google internship over a Harvard degree. So I, I think it's always been about universities' perceived ability to give you leverage when you enter the labor market, right? Universities have become the gatekeepers of many of the best careers. And actually, the, the right question to ask is, is it fair or reasonable or useful that we effectively outsource to academia to decide the winners and losers in the labour market, especially because there's no correlation between academics and job performance. Well, that, that can't be quite quite right. How can there be no correlation between academics and job performance? The universities are a sort of bundling exercise, aren't they? They pick up people of varying talents. They allow them to hone that intellectually, but also get soft skills and get used to sort of knocking about with their peer group. There must be some correlation when they come into the job market. Well, not not according to the Harvard Business Review, not according to numerous papers written on this subject. And actually, if you speak to employers, um, many employers think graduates don't have the skills that they need to be successful and they're having to spend time and money retraining them. But also, they're not really interested in what someone gets into the workforce in their degree or what they achieved in academia. They're interested in what they can do. And the other problem is, as we've been talking about here, universities actually don't represent as much of a cross-section of society as we might like to think. Now, why would an 18-year-old who has a choice pick an apprenticeship over university? I appreciate what you think is wrong with the university model, but are you claiming that an apprenticeship is worth the same amount as a degree? Because that seems a little odd given that it's much shorter. And so I wonder if you get into this, there's an old trap, wasn't there, about arguing what was parity of esteem, stodgy old phrase, but it meant sort of what equals what, you know, what was a plausible claim here? Are you on the right side of that? Well, look, of course, I would argue that we are on the right side of that. I think if you look at the benefit of an apprenticeship, the offer you get is pretty incredible. You get a well-paid job, you get great education through applied learning. You get one-on-one support from a coach. At Multiverse, you join a thriving community. It doesn't cost you anything financially. And our apprentices are going into companies like Google, Verizon, Morgan Stanley, the NHS. And also, I think when you ultimately look at parents and their perceptions and teachers and their perceptions, they care about where someone ends up. So they don't spend a lot of time obsessing about the mechanism. They want their children to be successful and they want them to be able to do well. And you can do that now through an apprenticeship. It is just not something yet that is as well understood as the university route. And there are lots and lots of reasons for that. One of the reasons I would suggest is 
sort of what is culturally ingrained and expectations. And these things, as you know, growing up around politics are actually very difficult sometimes to challenge, even if there is a logical argument to the contrary. And there is a, a view that the apprenticeship route is second best to university. In the US, apprenticeships are viewed as blue-collar options, but I think very largely. And the label college educated is still a gold standard. Don't you have a big challenge if you're going to smash that stigma? So it's absolutely a challenge, but it's one that we get very excited about. And we're starting to see that change very quickly in the UK. It will change in the US too. And I think, look, you're absolutely right. In the US at the moment, the word apprenticeship is completely associated with manual trades, construction, plumbing, etc. It's where most of their apprenticeships are currently clustered. That transforms incredibly quickly once people know you have a debt-free alternative to college that gives you the job you want in the industry you want with a full program of support. So we've just got to keep making that case. And again, it helps when college and university quite often shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, the college admission scandal, the Varsity Blue scandal in the US was the the, the tip of the iceberg for much bigger problems around um how much money people have to spend to get these opportunities and actually how the system disproportionately benefits people who already have plenty of of privilege. The latest funding round has pushed Multiverse's worth up to $875 million, is around just under £640 million. Um, What's your own stake in the company and what's that worth? That's not something I talk about publicly. Can, Can I just ask you why that is? I mean, we do often very cheekily on this show ask people how they make their money and we get various responses. Yeah, I, I bet you do. Look, it's it, it's not something, it's just not something I talk about really. And when you, you look at that investment, the value placed in the company, it's placed on multiverse, right? It's not placed on on me as an individual. And, and that reflects our team of the 400 people. You raised a lot of capital in a short amount of, of time. Do you feel that there is then that extra pressure to deliver and to what extent, you know, do you feel that you've got? That is a, the unicorn paradox, isn't it? It's a sign of early success and great belief in something that you're offering. And it's also, I mean, you're not uh, 21, but you're in your mid to late 30s. It's still very young to be dealing with something of this scale. And to what extent do you find that also a bit kind of daunting? There's never been a UK education unicorn but we absolutely believe that that we can do that we're growing incredibly quickly we are doing something that we all as a team believe in and it's it's working incredibly well and look this is just the start of something much bigger i mean i want us to be in a situation where in five years time employers are, are no longer rolling out graduate schemes they simply have early career schemes and you have People join as apprentices and you have people join with degrees and they join at the same level and they they progress according to their to their respective talents. I often like to think of this idea that if you were to take a snapshot in a pub of a group of 21-year-olds in five years' time, instead of asking each other, where did you study? They're asking, where did you train? Because the entire conversation has changed. There's no longer an assumption that if you're working in a great white-collar or no-collar job that you must have gone to university. Let's talk a bit more about you personally. Uh, you did, I mean, I suppose what was for a lot of people who've grown up in in very supportive, prosperous circumstances, you did the classic route. You went from a, a good school, albeit a high-performing state school, a public school, as you say, in the US, a state school in, in Britain. You then went to a very good university. You went to Bristol, one of the top universities. You read 
ancient history. Hmm, interesting choice. What did you get out of it? And did that inform this desire to go a different way? Yeah, it definitely did. And I, I remember really well starting my career in investment banking and being surrounded by people who were nearly all white, nearly all male. They'd all come from pretty privileged backgrounds and thinking, we have no divine right to be here, but this is a symptom of only hiring people from a small handful of universities. And just, I had two degrees, but neither of them taught me anything about my job, certainly not that job in corporate debt and derivatives. And they didn't even teach me how to navigate the workplace successfully. They were interesting and I enjoyed doing them. I enjoyed studying, but I don't credit higher education with allowing me, other than the credential, with allowing me to go and take the route I took in the workplace. The, the problem is more, it's a lack of choice. We're not anti-university. There's nothing wrong with people going to university and those who want to absolutely should. It's the idea that it's effectively a one-size-fits-all model. You have to go and show success in an academic-only education if you want a great job in a field that is in no way aligned to what you've been studying. It just doesn't make sense. You grew up in Downing Street, one of the most famous addresses in London, which is, of course, the official residence of the British Prime Minister. So a steady stream of world leaders walking through the door and practically your, you know, your, your bedrooms next to rooms in which people are just upstairs where, where people are deciding the fate of governments over a long time. And it really was. Uh, it was a lot of your childhood. What did you take from growing up with such close proximity to power? When I think of the clearest thing I probably took from it, and actually one of the biggest advantages. It was the fact that when your dad is the prime minister, it is very easy to believe that anything is possible because that's a pretty big job. And your dad is just your dad, right? You look at your parents as normal people, they don't seem particularly special to you. And so it was easy to believe, well, you could go on and do anything. I spent a lot of time thinking about that and thinking how, you know, an accident of birth determines very often who is able to look at the world like that and think like that. And it's it's allowed me, no doubt, to do some of the things that I've been able to do. Um, but it's it's not entirely fair that it is an accident of birth, which is one of the reasons I've, I've always been obsessed with this equality of opportunity. Yeah, so you, you, you've, you've checked your privilege beautifully, but I suppose my question was a bit different. It's true. I, that was the main thing I took from it. I, I met lots of interesting people. I had incredible experiences. Um, it, it's not about checking your privilege. It's more about being aware of what, what are some of the benefits you get from this that might not be immediately obvious to people, just looking at the kind of story of you grew up in Downing Street. What, what are your earliest memories of growing up in Number 10? The earliest memory is, is getting off a flight that landed in London on the day of the 97 election and, you know, the early hours of the morning being absolutely exhausted and my brother asleep on my shoulder and then suddenly walking into Downing Street with loads of people waving flags and cheering and celebrating and thinking, what, what is going on? This is incredible. It was, it was weird. It, it almost doesn't feel real when you look back at it. Does it feel entirely welcome when you're a child? Or but like, children are very sort of, to use the jargon, a bit path dependent. Right? They, they often don't expect big changes. Obviously, incredibly welcome, it, huge political victory. That was a landslide election in the in the UK. So if you ask, if you ask uh, your father and the Blairites, they were like, "What's to complain about?" I just wonder how it feels. I, I guess it's the thing that's not again always easy to understand. Behind the door, it is a very normal family life. And you do all the things that most families do. And actually, the thing I give my parents a lot of credit about is it 
felt very normal growing up, despite how odd the situation is. And, you know, you're walking past police at the gate and security ramped up even more after 9-11. And that's kind of harder to just sort of look at as a normal thing. But it it was actually remarkably normal. You know, I had friends around like everyone else does. And, and in the end, you adjust very quickly. And a lot of people can close the chapter on their most embarrassing adolescent indiscretions. If you're the child of someone in power, you will have yours aired publicly in the, uh, the media. You probably know what I'm, I'm coming to. And that was just an incident when you were 16, when you, you went out with friends after exams and got a bit the worse for wear. And is very amusingly, I, I find looking back at uh, your father's memoirs, is very amusingly uh, recollected that this then you know, became a bit of a news story. How does it you know, feel that it, it sort of follows you around in the way that maybe wouldn't if it's just you know someone who gets gets drunk, gets into trouble, gets a bit told off, you know, dries out the next day and gets on with their life? Well, I hear a lot less about it now. And actually, it's great because I don't think I've ever been asked by any of our apprentices about it when I do various events and things with them. So I, I think there's, there's probably a generational thing in there too. I think, you know, look, there are lots of, <laughs> there are lots of odd things like that, that that stay with you. And as you say, you know, a youthful indiscretion like that, that's maybe not so easy to escape. But actually, you know, look, I was incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky. And those things, are, it was difficult in the moment, but it's... It's not difficult now. It is, I have to say, if anyone who's ever been a teenager happens to be listening, or is indeed keeps a few at home, it is very amusingly. I always remember getting lots of, lots of nice letters from people saying, hey, the same thing happened to me. Exactly. I, I, as I say, I think it's recollected in a way that shows the warmth and humour of your family, but it is two pages of an account in the memoirs. So I suppose, did you ever think of saying, like, Dad, leave that out? The thing is... Dad, to be fair, has, has done a very good job of keeping us out of the media for most of his career. And it's, there's, I don't look back on that with any kind of strong sense of regret. You became a dad yourself recently. Congratulations. I did. Yeah. That was child number two. So I've got Tina. Child number two. Uh, two boys, I think, uh, if uh, the grapevine serves correctly. And... I spoke to, on this show, to the former CEO of PepsiCo, Indra Nui, recently about the work-life balance and how difficult it is when you're a business leader and a parent. And of course, by definition, you're kind of building the business at the same time as you're building your family, which looks like the position that, uh, that you're in now. How do you think about how to get that balance right? <laughs> I, I do think about it and I'm not sure I do have the balance right. And I'm not, I'm not sure it's, it's at all easy to do. I think but you and you asked me about my own parents and I, I reflect on it in that context I believe if you're ever given a platform to do something meaningful and particularly if you've been lucky enough to get access to great opportunities you have an obligation to figure out how to leave the world a better place than the one you arrived in and so you have to take that seriously if you're doing something in your career that that you feel can further that and that's going to take up a huge amount of your your time and energy and focus and my wife and I both work in demanding jobs that we care about but I still make sure I can spend quality time with my kids. It is the best. Being a dad is, is amazing. I absolutely love the time I spend with them and I value it so much. You did take paternity leave. I did. Was that partly for the pleasure of it, but also to send a signal that this is, is something that, that can be done while you're still building a successful business? And Pete Buttigieg, the US Transport Secretary, was a bit of a star of uh, Democrat politics in the US. He, he, he got a bit of a furore for taking paid leave after the birth of, of his children. So there does seem to be a bit of uh, unfairness ar around that, possibly 
even more so for men, although our listeners might disagree with me on that. He did, and it was unfair because I don't think it's for anyone else to to decide whether those choices are right or wrong that you're making as a parent. And on the parental leave case, I, I was acutely aware of it. It is important that we do send a message that founders of companies and CEOs and others can take time to spend with their kids and do that without feeling guilty about it, and their businesses can still run and be successful. And you don't get those, especially those early weeks back. And those are really special experiences. So I think everyone should take leave when they can. Did you get any tips on leadership by being around politics? As I always wonder, I'm listening to you talk and I think you could be a politician. I mean, the, the way that you tend to frame your own aspirations and your own ambitions in a broader social context, that comes very naturally to you. I don't think that's just something you're doing a, off a script. And it's uh, it's just an interesting thing. I think you'll tell me that you, you know, really, you've had enough politics in your life and you're likely to, to get on that particular greasy pole. But it does seem that it's informed your journey in some way. <laughs> Yeah, I th- of course it has. I mean, it, it has to when you're in that close proximity to it. Um, I mean, to be direct, I have no interest in being a politician. And I think the sad reality is I don't think that job has gotten more appealing to anyone over the last few years. One of the things I think is is really dangerous is as, as politics now is fracturing to such an extent um, and there is there is so much partisanship and so much disagreement over what should be fairly fundamental agreed upon principles that it's become far less appealing. And it's an environment that a lot of women find very unappealing. You know, we've already seen many examples of women in politics facing increased threats and, and, and violence and, and other things. It's an environment where I think most people would think twice before going into But what that does mean, by the way, is that businesses are going to have to step in and fill that void. Because if we have uh, politicians unable to come to decisions about things that matter, then it's incumbent on on businesses to try and do that. And I hope that the next generation of really big, successful companies are companies that are focused on making the world a better place. Last question. We're all about the style uh, here at The Economist Asks. I've noticed you have a bit of a penchant for multiverse branded, uh, multicoloured pullovers as your work uniform. How much is this kind of the expected work where, where, where you are? And is it a bit of a sort of Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg, grey T-shirt vibe you know, meets, meets London? <laughs> it's... Probably a combination of comfort. And when I worked in banking, I wore a suit every day for five years and I hated it. I don't like um, I don't like wearing suits particularly. And also just, hey, I'm proud of the brand. I'm representing the multiverse. Why not, why not show that off when I'm talking about it? Plus, easy not to have to think too much about what you need to wear each day. I'm just, I'm not allowed to wear it on the weekends. The multiverse free weekend. You and Blair, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks so much, Anne. It was my pleasure. And we'd love to know what you think. Has you and Blair persuaded you to think apprenticeships are a one-way ticket to a sterling career? Or is university still worth its weight in gold? Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at economistpods. As 2021 draws to an end, at The Economist, we're gazing into the crystal ball to find out what's in store for the coming year. Our World Ahead series predicts what technology will transform our lives in 2022 and why we could be jetting off to outer space for our next holiday. 
To read the series, head to our website. And while you're there, and you don't need a crystal ball to know what's coming, why don't you become a subscriber too? We'd love to have you. And for your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.